as you take your seats, please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. Picking up where we left off last week. In Galatians 4, verse 1. Beginning of Galatians 4, an especially rich summation of the argument Paul has been making so far in the book. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under a guardian and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves You want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. This last uh, summer I was able to join our children's choir in their end of the year special trip to Summer Waves in Jekyll Island. It had been a few years since I'd been to a water park. Uh, Enough years that I had some vague memories of having fun in the lazy river and and fun in actually swimming against the stream, like thinking that would have been an an enjoyable uh, thing. I I must have been in middle school. Last time I was in shape enough to be swimming well enough against a stream to make any progress. I'm not sure what my memories were, but now going as an adult with my own children, um, going against the stream of the lazy river is, is not fun at all. Uh, it's a different experience. But so often making progress in the Christian life, growing in our sanctification, our, our Christ-likeness, living a, a life consistent uh, in discipleship and the following of Christ feels like we're going against the stream, like we're sailing into the wind, like we're climbing up the mountain, the the world, uh, the flesh, and the the devil are all against us, pushing uh, against the progress we would make. Perhaps you have had this experience of trying to make progress in the Christian life. Perhaps um, you have indulged in destructive ways uh, in the past, uh, dealing with some kind of negative emotion. Perhaps there's anxiety or, or loneliness or uh, discouragement, and you've turned to some other kind of food or drink or inappropriate images to soothe or to to salve the soul, to to deal with the negative emotions. 
And perhaps you have at one point made progress in, in changing that pattern and trying to turn from finding uh, peace and rest, rightness with yourself in those destructive ways, and you've made progress and you find freedom in Christ. And yet perhaps you know how those temptations are always there nagging at you. Every time you're lonely again or anxious again, there's the temptation to reach for that thing that you know leads to destruction, but does uh, give a little, a little hint of respite from the desires or from the negative emotions. You might think in some ways that the Galatian churches, under the influence of false teachers, have returned to the way they had been dealing with their weak and weary souls. They had lived lives before Christ. They remembered a day very distinctly. They didn't have the, the fresh living water of Christ to slake their souls. When, when they had to turn to law-keeping and to their own righteousness and their own religiosity to give themselves some right standing, some peace in their own heart. And as life has gone on in the Christian life and in following Christ, they have been pushed Back. They have uh, backslidden into old ways. Ways of being justified before God and before one another that come through works righteousness, law-keeping, old Jewish or pagan religion. And Paul, since chapter 1, has been laying out his case, arguing for the truth. And as we come to this passage this evening, I mentioned already that he's summarizing so much of what he said just in the previous verses. And uh, I think we can further summarize this section as one clear argument, I hope. Three R's to help you in your note-taking if you do that. His first point being that you ought to remember where you have been. Remember where you've been. Realize where you are. And repent. Repent to where you should be. Remember, realize, and repent. And here... In these verses, Paul takes us to some of the most profound and concise theological argument and perhaps all the New Testament that we'll seek to work through together this evening. With me at verse 1. Again, he's returning to what he's been saying uh, before about the, the different eras in the history of God's people. Remember, it seems like Abraham's and the patriarch's era was an era of promise and of grace. You know, Abraham clearly didn't earn God, his standing with God. It was by grace. But you know, the, the thinking of the Galatians, the Judaizers, was that, well, when Moses came, the, the Abrahamic and then the Mosaic era, things changed when the law came. But Paul has been clarifying. He's been trying to make it clear for them. No, uh, the, the, the change, the, the progress of eras does not change the DNA. It's still the same basic structure. The way to be right with God is always by grace through faith. The law was never meant to be a ladder, but only a mirror in which you, you look and see what you should repent of. Paul has been saying in verse 23 that it was as if they were captives to the law. Verse 24, it was like being under a guardian until Christ came. Look at verse 24 in chapter 3 with me, what we studied last week. He says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. The coming of the law did not contradict or annul or change what came before. Justification has always been by grace through faith. 
And in verses 1 and 2, Paul is recapping, is going back and, and saying in a slightly different way what he said already. Look there with me. He says, I mean that the heir, this is picking up on the last uh, image of verse 29, the heir of God, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Perhaps you've seen the headlines in the news of uh, uh, the stories of, of Britney Spears or Michael Orr of the Blindside movie fame and the conservatorships that they were placed under by, you know, Britney's case by her father and, and Michael Orr's case by the Tui family. And of course, Michael Orr is suing the Tui family and they're going to release him for this conservatorship. But the idea of conservatorship uh, there is a, a guardianship. The, the legal uh, uh, rights are somehow not their own. They belong to someone else is sort of the situation Paul is speaking of here. There is a kind of legal guardianship that does not belong to a child, though he has a great inheritance he'll come to for the children in the room. It's, it's what uh, Simba is singing about when he says, I just can't wait to be king. Because He's not king yet. He, he's just a little runt of the little. But he'll be king someday. And so he sings the song of how great it'll be when he can call the shots. There's, this is what Paul is speaking of here. Paul's illustration apparently is a rather common thing in the ancient Greek aristocratic society. The father would indeed, as it says in verse 2, set a day when uh, the son grows up into full maturity. And he uh, comes to full, the, the training wheels are taken off. And he has full responsibility of the estate. The inheritance comes to him. Apparently part of the ancient Greek uh, rite of passage, uh, of maturity involved uh, the removal of a, a purple uh, collar on the toga. And then when the boy was a full man, he would have a, a pure white toga like his father. Of course, the ancient Jews, even the modern Jews, have a very... A distinct coming-of-age ceremony, the bar mitzvah, where they are no longer bars or sons of their parents, but are then now sons of the bar mitzvah, of the commandment. They are fully responsible in their inheritance as Jews under the law, under the commandment of God. You know, in our own day, uh, it's one, one thing that's often discussed. You know, we don't really have these ceremonies so naturally. Perhaps we have graduation from high school or one other thing, but in the ancient world, this was a distinct ceremony. When, when a boy became a man. That's what Paul has in mind as he comes to verse 3. Uh, look there with me. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, there's much discussion among the commentaries about what exactly Paul means when he says elementary principles. He brings it up again in verses 8 and 9. So skip down to verse 8. Look there with me what he's saying there. He uses the same language. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Generally, the commentators put forward two different readings for what he means by elementary principles in these two places. The first uh, would be a reading that uh, a slavery to abstract principles of the law, whether that be uh, the Mosaic law or natural law that is there, whether we 
uh, realize it or not. That, uh, they're just it's part of life. Uh, the second reading would, would see um, slavery more to demonic forces, false gods, idolatry, something more related to what he's saying directly in verse 8. Of course, these two readings, whether they are the law of Moses or natural law or demonic forces, these are not mutually contradictory in any way. It is indeed a demonic perversion to try and use the law as a means of justification. Satan always loves to twist the law, to pervert it, so that even in our law-keeping, our doing of what is righteous or good becomes unrighteousness. We become proud or insufferably self-righteous. Moreover, the point Paul is making may be more connected to the reality of, of religiosity in the heart of every man, woman, and child, uh, whether they be Jewish and they get their right standing and their peace with God by their law-keeping, or whether they be pagan and they have a different way of making peace with the gods, whether it be sacrifice or some other law-keeping. This is the elementary principle. You know you have to keep law. Down, down deep, you know you have a conscience. When we say the law of God is written on all of our hearts, we may be more or less sensitive to that. Our conscience may be uh, more or less informed, but we all have the elementary principles. The ABCs and one, two, threes of life we can't avoid. We know what's wrong deep down. And the demonic principle uh, is to, for Satan to either make you one who rejects all law and lives like a rebel without a cause for the individual self, totally anti-law, antinomian, or on the other hand, to be the prim and proper, perfect law keeper, all the while making yourself more self-righteous. Either way, the demonic forces can influence or take us captive to the elementary principles, that law written on the heart of every man, woman, and child. And Paul is saying, remember that slavery. Remember what it's like to live like that, where you're fearful. You're never quite sure where you're standing. You're insecure with God. You're insecure in your own heart. You're insecure with your family and friends. You're always wondering, have I, have I broken the law? Have I offended them? Have I offended God? There's no peace and security and rest as a son of God whose, whose favor you can't lose. No, the old way of law-keeping, of keeping the law, either lends to insufferable pride, total rebellion, or a life of insecurity, a kind of slavery and captivity to it. No rest, no peace, like Lady Macbeth unable to wash her hands on the treadmill of trying to keep up with the standards around me at school, at work, in the home, plagued by the guilt and shame, not ever able to match up to the level needed for acceptance, not quite fit enough, pretty enough, athletic enough, smart enough, friendly enough, rich enough, always longing to be justified, to be, to be at, at right standing with myself and with my peers and with God. This is the, the captivity of the law. Paul says, do not forget, but remember that. And then Paul takes us from remembering of what we were and where we've been to now who you are, realize who you are. He's going to show us, realize what has happened and what has happened to you and for you. Look at verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, apparently, my parents took me to the Philadelphia Art Museum when I was a boy. I don't remember 
anything from the inside of the museum. I remember running up the steps in the front like Rocky. But you know, the actual uh, seeing of the masterworks by Van Gogh or Caravaggio or other famous painters are in there, I had no appreciation for, no real interest in, and no memory of. And indeed, verses 4 through 7, this section can, can feel uh, perhaps at some level like you're a kid in an art museum. These are perhaps nice words, perhaps familiar words you know from Christmas time. Um, but if, if you go to uh, an art museum later on, you know, once you have an education, once you're a graduate student, I got to go back and see things I will never forget. Uh, behold and appreciate uh, the images, the artwork on the wall that was, were seared into my mind. <clears throat> you need a guide. Uh, these verses here need a guide. Each phrase, you might imagine, as a kind of master work. There is so much of the Christian religion uh, formulated in such a tight space. Every phrase is, is worth our slowing down and appreciation. So that's going to be um, the attempt. In the next few minutes, I'm going to walk the halls of Galatians chapter 4 and try to show you phrase by phrase the things you ought to know and to see and to appreciate about what Paul is formulating here, why these words are so deep. will work rather quickly, so I hope you'll keep up with me. The first phrase is there in 4a. But when the fullness of time come, pleroma ton chronos. Pleroma is an important word, a Greek word in the New Testament. This shows up all over the place when Paul is explaining uh, the relation of the Old Testament to the New Testament, and especially the coming of Christ. It's a way of summarizing really what all of the Jewish Old Testament religion had been. The true religion had been always a looking forwardness. Uh, a basic uh, obsession with waiting. The whole of the Bible is about it, if you think about it. Whether it's uh, all the how long, O Lords, throughout the Psalms, whether it's Abraham waiting for a son, or Israel for liberation from Egypt, or liberation from the promised land, or liberation from exile, for another Davidic king. It's the longing of all the prophets, all the hopes and desires never fulfilled. The, the whole Old Testament, right, is waiting, looking, longing, for the fulfillment, the pleroma, the fullness that would come in the coming of a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. And all time indeed was set. The fullness of time had come uh, politically. It was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There was political relative peace. There were Roman roads so that uh, the gospel missionaries could go out. Not only was there political fulfillment, there might be there's cultural fulfillment also. Uh, the lingua franca, Greek language spread by Alexander the Great. Hellenistic culture made the world united in one way or another. We might say not only politically fulfilled and culturally fulfilled, but also minish, uh, missionally the, the table is set. The Maccabean revolts and the, the Jewish diaspora had spread Jews all over the known world, which will, of course, end up as missionary spots for the Christian missionaries like Paul to go up and go to and preach and set up, set up camp. So the whole table is set. The time is fulfilled by the sovereign, providential working of God, all things together in the plan of God. The fullness of time, even the fulfillment of time. The second phrase on our tour says, God sent forth his son. I hope you see the profundity. 
He didn't make a son. He didn't anoint a son. He didn't uh, choose a son from a, a list of options. No, he, he sent one forth that was already with him. He sent forth his son. That is, there is a kind of claim to a pre-existence here. And of course, this is bedrock Christian doctrine of how the New Testament relates to the old. What, who Christ is. John 1.1, 1, 1, the very first concept John must press upon you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, the, the Logos principle, the, the, in the Greek philosophical tradition, the, the summary of all wisdom that relates to Genesis 1, the in the beginningness, that relates to Proverbs chapter 8, the, the wisdom Word personified in the beginning, creating with God the, the Wordness who is in the beginning. What is Genesis 1 about? The creation by speech, by the word of God. The sending forth of the Son, the pre-existent Son who is with God and is God, all bound closely into the claim Paul is making. Fully God and fully man. Pre-existent with him from the beginning. Our, our, our third phrase. The masterwork of Verse 4c said, God sent forth his son, born of woman. So essential is this truth that we confess to each Sunday morning in the Apostles' Creed. Born of the Virgin Mary. He's neither appearing to be man, just really God behind a, a skin cloak, nor appearing to be God. He's not really God, but he, he seems like it. Nor is he a kind of mixture of the two things. Nor is he a kind of a split personality. No, he is paradoxically uh, def defying all logically, both 100% man and 100% God. He is God incarnate. God, the infinite, eternal, unchangeable one, through the mystery of the incarnation, enters the finite and temporal and the flesh of man. That's the claim. Eternal Son of God sent, born of a woman. Why? For the all-important thing of being able to be the representative of those who are born of women, all mankind, becoming the man. It's no small thing when Pilate ironically says, behold, the man, the representative man, the one who's born of woman. Fourth phrase. He's building his argument. He's, he's reminding us helping us to realize all that God has done, all the truth that's come to pass. Verse 4d, born of woman, born under the law. So that we might say he is a representative who is a full covenantal participant. The covenant of works under which Adam is born into, under which we are all born into as soon as we take our first breath, so Jesus Christ is born into a covenant with God that is broken. Jesus, born of a virgin, born under the law, is, has, is not fallen, is, is not broken. He then goes on to keep the ceremonial and moral law to its fullest extent, fulfilling all the requirements for blessing. And moreover, not only actively fulfilling all righteousness, keeping all the Ten Commandments perfectly every second of his life in his head and his heart, but also taking upon all the curses as the representative, passively fulfilling all righteousness, taking on the wrath of God as one who is under the law, 
the blessings and curses of the old covenant law, of all that's in Genesis, all that's uh, in Deuteronomy, all that's repeated for each of the, the generations of Israel. Jesus takes himself under the law to fulfill the law. Fifth phrase. Each of these, of course, deserves a sermon. Each of these uh, is a kind of iceberg, only the very tip showing. Fifth phrase, verse 5a, to redeem those who were under the law. That is, what had happened in Eden. Under the law of do not eat, they fell and were put under the law. They too were under the law and fell under the curse of the law. And being under the curse of the law, what has happened to them? Well, they are exiled. They are coming under bondage. They are losing the ability to not sin. They are given over unto sin. They are slaves to the ways of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They have no ability to fulfill the law in them. They need to be bought back from slavery. In the word, in the ancient world, from which you buy someone from slavery is redemption. They are born out of exile. That is, there's a price paid for them. The price that Christ pays both actively in his perfect righteousness, his stores of righteousness paid on our behalf, and paying the debt, the weight, the, the curse of sin. He swallows that up. There was a righteous standard, a price you couldn't pay, you couldn't redeem yourself, you couldn't buy your freedom. And the thing that's undone by Christ that happened in the beginning he buys us, redeems us from slavery. The sixth phrase as we walk through the great hall of Galatians 4, verse 5b, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, we, we all love rags to riches stories. I imagine every little girl in here, you know, uh, would love to have happened what happened to uh, Anne Hathaway and in the Princess Diaries movie where one day she wakes up and she finds out she's a real princess. She never knew. She uh, has really been a part of the royal family all along. Indeed, um, that ridiculous plot <laughs> isn't ridiculous enough for what happens to us in Christ. We who are slaves, we who are far from God, are not only bought free out of slavery, but free and then put into the royal family, adopted into the family of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are in that family Not only are you bought out of slavery and adopted in the royal family, you're moved from Rincon to the French Riviera, from Compton to Malibu, from the slum to the Ritz. And this too, this idea that we are now made sons, is something that it's, it's embedded there in Genesis 1. Even in the, in the phraseology that's in Genesis 1, 28 and 29, we are made in the image of God. In Genesis 5, verses 1 to 3, we, we are told a little more about what image and likeness means. Moses, in writing Genesis, explains that uh, God made man in his image and likeness. And in the same verse next to it says, Abraham, or sorry, Abraham, Adam fathered Seth in his image and likeness. That is, something in being the image and likeness of God is a kind of sonship. We are meant to have a, uh, a sonship in the, in the same way that, well, you know, that boy is a spitting image of his father. He bears his image and likeness. There's that embedded in the image and likeness we're meant to have with our heavenly father. 
to be holy as he is holy, to, to bear the marks of his character, to reflect black to back to him, his glory. And then verse 6, he clarifies it all for us. Because you are sons, because you are sons, remembering where you've been, realizing what you are, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's not many verses in the Bible where we can see all three members of the Trinity in one line. This is one of those places. The Father sending the spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That same spirit, of course, who's there in the beginning, the same spirit who hovered over the face of the deep, the same spirit that was breathed or spirated into the nostrils of the first man, made in the image of God, the same spirit that is the regenerating spirit, the spirit of God that changes our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, that brings new life. This spirit changes not only the way we image back our likeness to God, but our intimacy with God. Dr. Keller is helpful, I think, in, in explaining the, the significance of Abba, Father. You know, Daddy is not quite a helpful translation. He says that in the South of America, not South America, but Southern United States, in the South, you uh, have some adult children who speak to their parents as Papa or Mama. And that's not in a, you know, I think a childish or disrespectful way. No, Papa, when given from an adult to their father, has both a, a familiarity to it and a reverence to it. And I think that's accurate in my experience. You all are probably better witnesses to that reality. But Abba catches both of that. It is not, a, it's not trite and it's not childish. No, it has the, the, the warmth of familiarity combined with the reverence of the position of father. So he sums it up in verse 7. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. <clears throat> Again, for the children in the room, uh, Simba, when he's wondering about his own identity, looks into the heavens and sees Mufasa in the clouds. And in the inimitable voice of James Earl Jones, says, be who you are. That's what Paul is saying here. We cannot fall back into who we have been. We must be who we are in Christ, not slaves, sons. We must remember, realize, and very briefly repent. Look at verse 9 with me. That really is the main point. That's what Paul is driving at. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be no more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. That is, you, know, you always know your functional religion, what you really believe by how you use your time. It says, I'm afraid, in verse 11, I may have labored over you in vain. Indeed, this is the tone that Paul has used all along. He's, he's unafraid to play the, the personal pastor card. I was there when you converted. I was your discipler. He's not afraid to shame them. I think I've been working in vain. He's willing to do anything it takes to turn them from going to destruction, from falling into the elementary principles, from following law unto death, to repent and bring them back unto life and by grace through faith, living a life of freedom and joy and before the Father, not insecure about where you stand, 
but knowing a father who loves you, a father intimate enough you can cry Abba to, who sends his own spirit, who father, son, and spirit throughout the fullness of time has come to save you. How could you go back again? For the believer who has decided to follow Jesus, there is no turning back. Though none go with me, no turning back. Though none may follow, no turning back. Remember the slavery that you've been in, the running of the rat race of life. Realize the freedom you have tasted in Christ and repent. Turn to him even in this very moment. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that we would see with clarity the antithetical nature of living according to the ways of the world, the elementary principles of trying to live a life that uh, matches up to the expectations of even my own self or the world around me, the, the, the expectations of a certain amount of a, achievement, a certain neighborhood to live in. Father, help us to be continually repentant of the, the natural way we get blown along by the current of life, falling in again to works righteousness. Help us to realize who we are and to be who we've been made to be by the power of God throughout history, even to this moment. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.